We return this morning in our study of the Gospel of John to John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open with me to John chapter 11. We do have some Bibles available for you on the back cart if you would like to follow along in your copy, in a physical copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take one of those Bibles, take it home, read it. It's our gift to you. Gospel of John is a great place for you to start. If you've never read the Bible, just start at the beginning and uh, work your way as we have been doing week after week after week. We pick up this morning where we left off last week, John chapter 11, verse 1. John 11 begins the last section of John's gospel before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This begins a time where Jesus is going to minister and focus His ministry on those who are closest to Him, equipping them, building their faith up for what is about to come, rather than dealing with a lot of the public confrontations and controversies that He's been about in recent weeks as we have worked our way through the last few chapters. Today's passage is a lengthy one, but it's one that I want us to digest as a whole because it communicates to us wonderful promises about Jesus' relationship with death. And it does so through this last great miracle that John records. The miracle to top all other miracles, the climax in many ways of Jesus' sign ministry. And it's one that for us here today in this local expression of Christ's church, known as Ascension Presbyterian, it hits us more than ever right between the eyes. Because we've all at least in this church family, we've all been rattled by death recently. And some of you, more than once in the last year, will all be rattled by death in the future, if we haven't already. Death is ugly. Death is mysterious. Death is inevitable. But death doesn't have the final word. And the Scriptures remind us of that this morning. And so today's account is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus confronting the frailty of this creaturely life that He has willingly decided to be a part of and willingly entered. And so I invite you to listen to this amazing account in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you would, I invite you to do that. If you're not able, that's fine. Just remain in your seats and listen as I read John chapter 11. Follow along with me. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. I don't know how many of you look at the bulletin, but I've titled this sermon, Jesus and Death. Jesus and death, and it's because this story reveals to us at least three things about Jesus' relationship with death that in turn communicates three ways that God's heart and God's love is made evident to all of us here this morning. The first one is this. Jesus is never surprised by death. Jesus is never surprised by death. My grandmother Sutton lived just short of her 101st birthday, dying peacefully in her sleep. My wife's grandfather was 96 when he went to be with the Lord again at his home after a long, full life. We would all say that we're never really ready for death, but there are some deaths, like those two deaths I just spoke of, that are anticipated, right? We've resigned ourselves to the reality that they are coming. We know it's something that we all have to face eventually. However, mostly, and particularly for us, recently, Death has caught us completely flat-footed, totally off guard. Diane Miller, Renee Tremaine, Bryce's sister, all unexpected deaths in the past year. You see, it's these types of, of deaths that can tempt us to believe that things are out of control, that chaos is reigning, which only leads to anxiety and to despair. But here's the reality. Jesus is never surprised by death. We see it here in this passage. Look how Jesus reacts on learning the news that his friend, the one that he loves, John says, Lazarus is the only other one than John himself who is described like that. The one whom Jesus loved. On learning this news that his friend is possibly deathly ill, Jesus hardly reacts. In fact, when he hears it, and I slow down just a moment, he decides to stay longer where he is. An extra two days, John tells us. And we say, why? What are are you doing, Jesus? Martha and Mary, when Jesus got there, why, Jesus? If you had been here. Well, this is not indifference on Jesus' part. Jesus loves this family. They're some of Jesus' closest friends. But John conveys to us that this is a purposeful delay. A delay of love, it's been called. 
In other words, Jesus knows something about the reality of things that isn't apparent to the rest of us. What does Jesus know? Well, Jesus knows, first of all, that Lazarus' death is not the end. He will die, yes, but not really. But really, he will die. He says as much in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now this phrase of sleep is used more than once in the scriptures to describe the death of believers. Jesus has used it more than once in his ministry, and he is always misunderstood when he uses it. But it seems like by the time the book of Acts rolls around, Christians seem to have got it. Because it's said of Stephen on his death in the book of Acts, and Paul uses it to describe Christians in Corinth. And it denotes this temporary rather than permanent status that believers find themselves in upon death. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But Jesus uses it here in the same way that He does with this with the young girl that, that He used it in Matthew 9 when He raised that girl to life. This sleep that Jesus is talking about is, is even more temporary than the last day, than being awakened at the last day. Lazarus is really gone. In verse 14, after the disciples' question, Jesus says plainly, Lazarus has died. But he's not surprised. Jesus is not worried, not bothered by this. But rather, he seems to have an agenda. Even with death. Just like the man born blind back in chapter 9 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus is about His and His Father's glory. Listen again to His words in verse 4. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. You see, this is more than just not being surprised by death. This is more than just expecting it. This is mysterious purpose in the midst of it. This is the turning of it for good. And this this point, this promise from God's Word here this morning is so much bigger than simply death. Because it reminds us, as we talked about a little bit back in chapter 9, it reminds us that all our trials, that all of our afflictions, there is something bigger going on. It's not random. It's not chaos. You know what? It's actually love. As one pastor that I read this week wrote, the love of Jesus may include trouble for you. And so I can say to my dear friend Bob Miller that the love of Jesus hasn't diminished for him one bit in the death of his wife. We do not lose heart. The Apostle Paul said, though our outer self is wasting away for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us 
an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's not being glib about our grief, about our pain, about our hearts. But he is saying that whatever is happening in light of what's coming, it finds its proper place. And when we add to it the fact that Jesus is not surprised by death, but there is an agenda behind everything that goes on, even extending into death, we can find comfort. We can find hope. But just because Jesus is not surprised by death doesn't mean that Jesus is okay with it. And that's the second thing that I want you to see this morning. Yes, Jesus is not surprised by death. But secondly, Jesus is grieved by death. Jesus is grieved by death. I mean, this whole scene is kind of an amazing scene. That's why I wanted us to read it and digest it as a whole. Jesus is not surprised. He knows the agenda. And yet still, he is moved when he is confronted with this scene. It's not supposed to be this way. And Jesus is grieved that this is the way it is. He's grieved intimately with our experience. He knows where Lazarus is going. He knows Lazarus' eternity. And yet in the midst of that certainty, He weeps. We see the tears of God Himself. And this isn't, I don't want you to picture in your mind's eye Jesus sobbing in uncontrollable despair. Even the Greek word that's translated here as weep doesn't convey that kind of picture, but it conveys tears just rolling down one's face. Jesus isn't sobbing, but he's not stoic either. He's entering into our sorrow. He's entering into the sorrow of His friends. Indeed, it's their sorrow that seems to prompt this response. And this has always been the heart and character of God. Isaiah 63.9, in their affliction, He was afflicted. Psalm 34, 15 and 18, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Jesus is not some all-knowing deity in the sky that simply intellectually knows what you are feeling from afar. He is the God who has experienced your pain. He has walked in your sadness. He has felt your weakness. He knows. And not just that, but but He remains. Right? He has given us the gift of the Counselor, also called the Comforter, to walk with us in our grief. To walk with us in the shadow of the valley of death. David gives this amazing picture in another psalm, Psalm 56. Listen to Psalm 56, verses 8 and 9. He says this to the Lord. David says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. What a picture that God treasures our tears, that He stores them up in remembrance. 
Because He's going to repay all of those tears a hundredfold. He's not surprised. He grieves. And the last thing this morning is He knows the end of the story. It's the third reality and truth from John 11 that Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered death. We see it here with Lazarus as we do in other parts of the Bible. Simply put, Jesus and death don't mix. Dave was commenting on my sermon title, Jesus and Death. Is that like peanut butter and jelly? I said, no, it's like oil and water. Think about this. There isn't a place in the Scriptures where Jesus comes across a dead person and fails to raise that person to life. He's not content to let it rain in His presence. You see, Jesus' emotion in this seen is not just empathy for his friends not just an entering into our sorrow though it is that but it's also just anger at the reality of what's taking place while jesus grieves intimately right with our pain and with our loss the loss that his dear friends are experiencing and he can see it on their faces he also grieves cosmically with the reality of our world. And I love how one of our reformed theologians, B.B. Warfield, writes about this. I don't often quote systematic theologians, but I'm going to do it this morning. He says this, Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. The emotion which tore at his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. And so John gives us the fifth I am statement here as Jesus declares in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. As Jesus stands before this tomb, He stands before it as a victorious warrior. A shadow of what is to come. What He does here with Lazarus is a foretaste of His own exit from the tomb that will eventually be our exit from the grave as well. You see, Jesus has taken away the sting of death for every saint. And there can be no greater comfort than this. No greater truth to be reminded of. That death is not the end. But the end of death will come. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says to the church, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is God's greatest gift of love. The death for the believer in Jesus is merely a shadow, not a final darkness. The final darkness doesn't have to be faced because Jesus faced that for us on the cross. So what does this all mean 
for us. Let me just try to put a fine point on it as we end this morning with three things. Three things in response to these three realities. First of all, and most importantly, this is a call to believe. It's a call to believe Jesus. Jesus asks us the same question He asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that everyone who lives in Me will not die? Martha's answer wasn't the whole answer, but it was a start. She says in verse 27, I believe that you are the Christ. And that's where it must begin. And I know that many of you have said those words. You have confessed those words and praise God. But some of you sitting here maybe never have. And you're lost. And death is coming. And Jesus is your only hope of rescue. You must believe in Him. But then secondly, for those who believe and grab a hold of who He is, it's an invitation to find comfort, right? Simply put, we can't look at sorrow or death in the same way as those in unbelief around us. We just simply can't. That doesn't mean we don't weep. No, we weep. And Jesus gives us permission here to do so. But it does, And it doesn't mean that we understand it all either. No, we weep. We're confused. But it does mean in the midst of the fog, in the midst of the tears, as I spoke to many of you at Diane's funeral, hope. Hope. And then finally, it's a call to believe, it's a call to, or an invitation to find comfort, and then finally, it's an encouragement to raise the dead. What do I mean by that? We can't miss the spiritual picture that John is reminding us here. The one that we spoke of at length last week. God raises to life those who are spiritually dead. He calls them. And they come. And they have life. And of course, you and I can't do this in and of ourselves, but God is pleased to use us to bring the dead to life, to bring about resurrection and renewed life, spiritually speaking. As one writer, A.W. Pink, wrote, there is no higher privilege this side of heaven than for us to be used of the Lord in rolling away gravestones and removing grave clothes. As Peter writes in one of his letters, there is a hope that lies within each of us, right? So don't be afraid, but be ready to speak it, to proclaim it, to point to it. To point to the one who's not surprised by death, who grieves with death, and with us who experience it, but who is the resurrection and the life. Friends, death is never good news. 
but Jesus in death is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this account. How amazing it would have been to be there and to see this man come out of the grave. Father, some of us have gotten glimpses of it Spiritually speaking, as we have seen those who have walked in darkness for many years, those who have lived in rebellion, tear off their grave clothes and be clothed in Christ and in newness of life. Oh, Father, how we long to be used by You in that process, in that gift of salvation. And how we long for the day, that certain day, When more than just spiritually, but in reality, the dead will be raised to life. All things will be made new. All things will be made right. All because you have ushered it in, Lord Jesus. You are the first fruits. Your resurrection is the proof of what is to come for all of us, all who die. In Christ. And so we pray with anticipation, with hope. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And until then, give us the grace and the faith to hope and to stand firm in these promises. Father, this I pray in the name of Jesus, the risen one. Amen.